This is the politics of everything, and I'm your host, Amber Danes. Welcome to the podcast where we want to discuss the politics of everything from money to motherhood, nutrition to narcissism, startups to secularism, the environment to equality, and much more. Our guests are experts in their field or topic of choice, even if you've not yet heard their name. This is a bipartisan podcast. So while we love exploring varied views and get a buzz from a healthy debate, by no means is this a one-sided forum for any one political view. So please listen up and enjoy the politics of everything. Jackie Lewis is a bit of an entrepreneur powerhouse. Today, along with her husband, she is co-founder of a global school, The Broad Place, where she embraces regular stressed humans and gets them skilled up in accessible tools and practices so that they become more creative, more grounded, healthier, and happier. Jackie takes ancient knowledge and makes it easy to understand and easy to employ in our modern daily lives. An educator, facilitator, and speaker on clarity and high-grade living, Jackie teaches integrated meditation all around the world, including Sydney, Melbourne, Byron Bay, Los Angeles, London, and beyond. She runs workshops and talks centered around enhancing creativity, increasing clarity, and expanding consciousness. Before she taught meditation, she was immersed in the world of advertising, marketing, and branding, so knows a thing or two about being stressed. Jackie was included by David Jones in a national campaign in 2016 for the most influential women in Australia and has taught at LinkedIn, ANZ, Centre Group, amongst many other companies. Today, I'm finding out more as we discuss the politics of meditation. Welcome, Jackie. Thanks, Amber. So what did you want to do when you grew up and, you know, your childhood kind of dream story and how did that pan out for you? Did you do it? Well, finally, when I was a little kid, my brother is three years younger than I am and he was born with spina bifida, so he's disabled. And I was so concerned about him falling behind in everything in life, let alone school, I actually started teaching him. So every year that I was in kindergarten and then year one and then year two, I would teach him everything that I was learning so that he was ahead of the game. So literally how to read, all his colors, how to write. And I think as little kids, you know, you love your teacher and being a teacher is a really cool thing to, in a small mind, being a teacher is going to be the best job ever. And so I, I, when I was little, I wanted to be a teacher and finally that's what I am now. But there was a big gap in between that being realized. That's very cool. So your initial career path, what did you do and how do you reflect on that experience now that you're no longer in it? So interestingly, I started off as an interior architect and furniture designer and graphic designer with all my, you know, straight out of high school, that was my education. And I worked in that, those industries for quite a while and then moved into advertising and marketing and PR and branding. Now, all of those areas have the same thing in that they creative experience and interestingly in marketing and branding, what I was trying to do is help brands and businesses and the people within them communicate themselves on a higher level. Now, so there was a lot of things that were learned in that experience and now I just concentrate on the individual rather than the business. But the creativity piece and being in flow and being in alignment and understanding values are all similar things, just different industries and presented very, very differently, can I add. I bet. So how did you come across the world of meditation? Was it something that you practiced at a young age or did you literally have to get sort of to a point where you needed it? Like what's the experience you've had of meditation in the early days? So when I was a little kid, one of the things I would do, and this was 
uh, you know, like I'm talking from the age of sort of six, seven, eight, nine, we spent a lot of time in hospitals because of my brother and I had a lot of time by myself and I was bored a lot. And I would sit with my eyes closed and, and imagine this sort of expansive experience and I would go into nature as well. Um, we lived on a big national reserve and I would sit in the reserve and stare out at the horizon and I was doing funnily what I now know as meditation when I was small and then I came back to it when I was 18 and it was due to stress and anxiety. I was I started doing yoga, the teachers that I was learning under were doing a little bit of meditation and I became, you know, I recognized the little particular states that I was having that reminded me of when I was little and I really wanted to dive into that. And then it was like a decade of mishmash, learn everything, try everything. It was a big hot mess, but I was really into it. And then I officially got a daily practice is in a technique that I continue to do now 10 years on. Uh, it's the one that I teach, which is Vedic meditation. But, you know, it's been now 20 years of practice. And uh, <laughs> I think I've had every meditation experience that um, you can have from, you know, learning and studying in Japan and India and obviously here in Australia and, and trying it all really. So it's been, a, it's been a big, big journey. Wow. And how does that all culminate in what the Broad Place does today? And really, how did you get that business started? Like what's that transition point from the, the world of advertising and marketing? And obviously your husband's had his own businesses as well. But, you know, how did you get to the point where this is what you were going to do? And how do you turn that into what is now the Broad Place? The Broad Place initially was, uh, it was an experiment um, in helping people that were just like us, uh, that were really engaged, living very modern lives, usually very tech-driven and dynamic and demanding and, <laughs> you know, high-strung. And how do we help people that were interested in engaging with meditation and being more creative and even being more spiritual and being more conscious? but didn't necessarily want to give up wearing deodorant or become a vegan or, you know, think that a lot of people think, oh, I have to, you know, I can't drink red wine anymore. Um, and for us, it's been a way of combining ancient knowledge with modern living. And so we formed the Broad Place to see if we could share what we'd learned with other people. And uh, interestingly, I think due to right time and right place as well, and that's continuing to grow, there is a definite, a new forging of a path whereby it doesn't have to be like a monk living in the modern world. Um, we can actually just employ the principles and the techniques and the education and flourish in a modern world, which is fascinating. So the Broad Place is very much about that. It's about helping people elevate themselves in the life they already live as opposed to giving them a whole new um, set of structure and paradigms in which they have to live through. So um, it's how do we take philosophy how do we take technique and education and live a higher-grade life from that standpoint? And just on that term, what does high-grade living really mean? That's a great question. High-grade living for us is, because it's a term that we've coined, is we, would t we always teach about how do you live from a higher plane of creativity or how do you live a more high-vibrational life or even positivity. You know, how do you have a higher quality in your language and your mindset? And so high-grade living is very much a term that encompasses that. And it's not necessarily about adding a lot more stuff in. It's usually about trimming out the stuff that's not working and doing a full audit of where you're at in particular areas of your life and then editing and then from there, so clearing out and then refining. 
So this lovely, everyone's going to have a different version of what high-grade living means to them. For some people, it's around how they communicate. For some people, it's their home. For some people, it's their work environment. Um, for some people, it's their relationship. And they are interested in applying those principles to have a higher-grade version of what that is for them. Very interesting. So do you think meditation is for everyone? And look, the reality is many of us are very busy, we're hyper-connected, and you do sort of allude to the idea you don't have to give up all your tech and all your sort of comforts, if you like, of modern life to be a great meditator and maybe achieve a high-grade life. But what is meditation really all about? How can we start on this journey if we've never done it before? Yeah, great. So I'm going to answer the first question, which is, is meditation for everyone? And I honestly don't think everything is for everyone. Uh, I hear a lot of meditation teachers, you know, um, say, yes, meditation is for absolutely everyone. But I think we need to start with a little bit of realism. And there's nothing that's for everyone on the face of the earth. However, from that, I'd like to also say that I've never taught anyone meditation that hasn't been able to do it. So meditation is for everyone if they want to be able to access meditation and be able to do it with the right technique. And I, all of our students absolutely love their practice. Um, but I'm sort of, the more and more becoming against the blanket statements, um, like yoga is for everyone or veganism is for everyone. And um, these sorts of statements I don't think help the cause because nothing's for everyone. The second part of that is that Hyper-busy, super-connected living uh, means that we are more compressed. So we've got more on our plate. Or if you think of it like your mobile phone, you know, we've got more apps, we've got more photos, we've got more messages being downloaded, and our phones are getting fuller and fuller. So our brains are exactly like that. We've got more information being input every single day. From that point, that's why we need meditation, because it's like clearing out the caches, it's clearing out all the irrelevant stuff that we no longer need, so that then we can be more connected into the world, not just overwrought and run and fraught. So if we find the time for meditation, and it, it is a discipline, it's like anything, it's anything that we want to do in our lives, we have to make time for it. Um, it doesn't appear magically from nowhere, but when we do make the time for meditation, Everyone that practices um, Vedic meditation will attest they feel like they have more time. And it's because they're thinking more clearly, uh, they're more grounded, they're more conscious, they're not as reactive, they're more responsive. And so what they're doing with their time and how they are in their days is much more dynamic. And so you, if you ask students, they always say, look, I don't know how, but I take time to meditate and I feel like I have more time in the day. So, it, But it's one of those things. You know, you have to be able to meditate. You have to meditate to be able to have that experience. Absolutely. It's interesting that people feel like they have more time. And I think it's when you're giving that analogy about having, you're clearing the caches or we've got all those tabs open in our brain. It is true. It's being able to clear that and cleanse that and almost reset, I imagine, how you feel about, you know, what you have to do and what's on your plate for the next day, month, year, or whatever. Yeah, look, it's a little reboot. And a lot of students, I mean, the hardest time, I think, in the day is the afternoon to fit in your second meditation. But all students say, and myself included, you fit in that little 10 to 20 minute meditation. Sometimes it's only 15 minutes. When with this practice, we recommend no less than 10 and no more than 20. But even if you do 12 or 13 minutes, your productivity boosts so much more in the afternoon. So you fit in the meditation and what would have taken a little while and you're dribbling around and you're distracted, instead you're hyper-focused. You're really present and you're getting it done at a greater speed with better quality. So a lot of our students will just see it as an investment in their time. They're just going to invest 
um, that 15 minutes is 1% of your day. So they go, I'm going to invest that 1% to enhance the rest of the afternoon and the quality of my work. It's a great return on investment if those stats work. So that, that's great to know. So what do you think yeah. some of the um, biggest myths around meditation that you've heard and how can we all enjoy the benefits from meditation? I mean, give us a little example perhaps of, of something we might learn in your practice. Oh, okay, so there's so many myths we would, <laughs> we would need an hour and a half. Of the course, the biggest ones. ones are, yeah, the biggest one is that you need to stop thinking. That, yes. That's the biggest one. People go, oh, I need to stop thinking. <laughs> now, the key thing with meditation is to know that it's like exercise. There's so many different techniques and they all present differently. So you practice them differently, the results are different, and with some meditation techniques, it is about getting rid of thoughts. But with the type that I teach, um, it, we use a mantra, which is a sound. And what happens in the meditation is the mantra and the thoughts do coexist. And you have you have times with just the mantra and you have times with thoughts and you have times with no thoughts. So what it means is there's no straining and pushing away. I, I feel so sorry for people that have sat down by themselves with no training at all and gone, thoughts be gone. I mean, it's like saying to your body, please stop my heart beating. Um, they are just always going to be there. So that's the most common one. And if anyone listening is frustrated with that, you just haven't learned the right technique yet. And the other one is that you need to meditate in a quiet place, which is my favorite. Because, yes, yes. Um, you picture people yeah, having to find a quiet room, eyes shut, perfect silence, you know, maybe some uh-huh. birds tweeting, all that sort of stuff. And that's not going to be reality yeah, for people. No, sitting on a lanny, whale, uh, you know, <laughs> singing in the background and a you know, stream trickling. None of that you need. Again, every meditation technique is differently. So I'm only speaking about the one about Vedic that we teach, but it's very much about the resilience of meditation. And the funny thing is all meditation comes from India and it's one of the noisiest places on the face of the earth. Um, even I've studied in the hills of, um, in the, hills of the Himalayas and it's still noisy up there. So your internal noise, it's usually always going to be as noisy as your external. Most of my students meditate in the back of Ubers, on buses, on trains, on airplanes, at home with the kids playing, uh, at home with the TV on, uh, or music playing in the background because that's modern life. And they will sit and they will med- be able to meditate no matter what's going on outside of them. That's a resilient practice and that's the type that I think we need in the modern world because as soon as we find we have a structure like oh, I need a special chair and a special incense and a special this and a special that, you know what, we're not meditating. There's just too many barriers to entry for us. So finding a practice that means we can do it anywhere, that might be, oh my gosh, students of mine meditate in fire escapes, um, under their desks, in meeting rooms, in the funniest places, at train stations, anywhere that you can sit with your back supported which is also another misconception that you need to be uncomfortable when you meditate, uh, otherwise you're not doing it properly, then they are able to meditate anywhere. That's amazing. So give us a little example of how, you know, perhaps from your own experience you've, you know, taught someone or you had your own experience and then you've suddenly seen that benefit. So you talk about things like greater clarity, more productivity. What would be a really tangible example of that that we can all relate to? So the the result that people talk about the most is, the sense of clarity. It, it, that's the, the thing that everyone says, I just feel more clear. I know myself better. I can see things what they are. I'm not as blindsided by what's going on in my life and I'm not as confused. So that comes from a deep alignment with who they are as well as more vision and, and clearness in the way in which they're seeing everything that they're doing and everything and everyone that they're interacting with. On a more abstract level, I'd like to include this one though because a student of mine recently said this to me and 
I loved it and because I hear it a lot. And I said to her, how are you going? And we bumped into each other and she goes, and she looked kind of frustrated. And she's like, you know what? I'm, I'm happy for no reason. <laughs> and I said, you seem kind That's of That's a good thing. <laughs> yeah. But she goes, I'm, I seem frustrated because it's dawning on me that since I started meditating every day with this technique, I'm now able to access happiness that's not tethered to something. And it's now at my age, you know, she was in the 40s, and she was now at my age that I realized that before this, every single time I felt happy, it was tied to something. It was because the kids were finally in bed, or I'd just gotten the project signed off on, or, you know, I'd gotten my bonus, or I'd gotten my nails done, or I'd gone to a fancy restaurant, or whatever it was. It was unhappy because of these things. I wasn't just joyous because. I was being alive, I was alive, I was in my day. And she said, now I feel that all the time. I walk down the street, I feel like I'm smiling, and it's strangers for no reason. And I, she said, I feel light and I feel happy. And it's not because of anything in particular in that moment. And students say this a lot, and it sounds kind of small and insignificant, but for me it's such a huge thing because a lot of the time we are tethering our happiness to stuff outside of us. It's not coming from within us. And I think that's one of the most valuable things about practice. And something we can all definitely relate to in terms of our modern life and all that striving, you know, I'll be happy when, you know, that kind of statement too, that once you achieve that mountain that you'll be fine or, you know, you like you say, you get the promotion or the money in the bank or whatever it might be. So that sounds amazing. So talking about money, how do you create financial success from a business that's quite narrow in its niche? Like I know the Broad Place has a lot of offerings, but really what you're, you're selling is the Vedic Meditation practice and everything else hinging on that so how have you really leveraged that into something that's sustainable financially look it is incredibly narrow in the niche so if you look at um, self-development as a huge broad area we sit within a very small area of that if you look at education as a as a broad area which we provide again we sit within a micro niche on we focus on creativity and clarity if you look at spirituality as a huge banner we sit very tightly within that as in spirituality specifically modern living so even if we if you go to look at all the areas in which we sit in, even retreats, um, even meditation, we are niche within all of them. And the way in which we've been able to be financially, I'm going to say stable um, and thrive, is that we are incredibly aligned in what we do. So we make sure that everything is of a certain standard. Um, we are constantly evolving and tweaking and adding and layering on to what we offer. So it takes a lot more work in that regard, and it's a very creative process to keep on elevating everything that we do. But I believe it's because that, um, making everything more high-grade all the time, is so in alignment with the philosophy of high-grade living that people resonate with it deeply. And they get to experience it, whether it's how we communicate with our students or how we educate with them, educate them, my apologies, um, or how the experiences that we get to provide. Yes. Because we're so engaged. It's not just like a rollout or something. We're so deeply embedded and engaged in it. And our, the way in which we choose to live is in alignment with what we're teaching. Um, I think there's a truth to it. There's a resonance that people really love. So I also caveat, I don't necessarily believe that just because you love something that you're going to thrive in it. You know, that whole live in you thing, like just find something you love. Yes, and the money will come. (laughs) Yeah, and it will flow. You know, it's totally Totally. I just think that's such a load of nonsense. But the other thing is I think that we bring a work ethic um, from our old background. So, living, you know, working in creative industries, particularly in advertising, um, and pulling that in, that work ethic. You know, Anne and I work incredibly hard. 
yes, we love what we do. So absolutely, it doesn't always feel like work. But anyone that tells me a bad statement doesn't feel like work. <laughs> um, yes, there's, there's, a, there's, there's something a wrong there. <laughs> yeah, totally. Like, you know, we're, we're very aware that there's going to, we're like with any business, there's bits you love, there's bits you don't love. Um, and how do we ensure that we still have integrity and authenticity even in the bits that we don't necessarily like um, and become better at them? So I just always like to throw that in because I hear so many, so many people go, I love, you know, meditation or I love learning about myself or I love yoga. Maybe I should just dedicate my life to, you know, sharing and teaching that. It's like it's just as hard work as anything else. You know, it's not you're going to leave the corporate job and become a yoga teacher and, like, waft around all day. Um, not if you want to earn a living from it. There's going to have to be a level of um, tenacity and grit and sweat, like in anything in life. If you want to be the best at it, you're going to have to work at it. Totally. And I always think it's not like you turn one tap off and the other tap just turns on. You know, there's that transition and building your reputation. All those things that I guess you've had to redo in a way because you had a different identity when you were working in the more uh, commercial aspects of advertising and branding and, and um, you know, consumer goods. So, but I can see how some of that knowledge would definitely help you because you're a realist about how you need to scale the business and what you need to be paying attention to as well. Yeah, definitely. And also, I mean, I was always an incredibly hyperactive, enthusiastic, driven individual when we are in advertising and, and branding and marketing. And I'm the same person now. I mean, I'm the least People have an idea of like, oh, the Zen meditation teacher, and I'm not that person. I still swear, I still, uh, you know, run a mark. I I had a really fun time and go at everything like a bull at a gate. And I, to some people, that's refreshing. To some people, I'm sure it's bewildering. They're like, hang on a minute, I thought you'd be all calm and wearing, you know, white linen. And um, I've just chosen to make sure that who I was is still who I am, as opposed to, you know, reinvent myself to some, you know, new uh, meditation teacher. So I think that the transition has been much easier in that regard. So have you had any special mentors, inspirational people that you can maybe articulate how they've guided you and what they've taught you about success in life? I, I mean, I've been very, very fortunate since I was, um, I got my first mentor when I was 19, and that was Tina Englund when I was studying interior architecture, and she was just incredible and opened me up to the world of mentors, uh, and what having someone guide you creatively and intellectually, um, and what that looks like. So I've always sought out amazing mentors and inspirational people, and there would honestly be too many people to list right now. Of course, um, but I mean, is there anyone particular, but, obviously you've articulated one lady that stood, stands out, is anyone else perhaps in the practice you're in now that you, you definitely attribute some of your success to? Absolutely. So Maharishi Nahashogi is just one of the most incredible teachers and particularly in regards to what he was able to create from an educational perspective, Shri-M, um, that's S-R-I-M, is another teacher that I study under um, all the time, who I love. He's based in India. Um, my karate sensei is just incredible. His name is Mark Gravel, and he has so much integrity and grace in what he does, and, and his dedication and pursuit of personal excellence is is mind-blowing, um, his kindness and his generosity and his fierceness. He's just the perfect teacher. They are some just at the moment. I, I also, I don't know him personally, but I adore the works of Brené Brown and also uh, Pena Chodron, uh, also Tara Brock. There's some really fantastic teachers who are 
witty, they teach spiritual knowledge, but they're witty and engaged and real. And that's what I'm looking for in teachers. I'm not into pedestaling anymore. And I'm not a big fan of the guru, which is the idea that you, you know, let go of all your boundaries and everything you have uh, in pursuit of one person's knowledge. Um, I think it's really important to stay grounded in that experience. Totally. So some final words. What would be your favourite statement or a little experience for you that sums up the politics of meditation? So I'm going to look at this through the lens of the word politics and particularly for anyone listening that's been involved in anything that they saw as conscious or spiritual, the politics are still deep in that area. Um, Interestingly, I've encountered more politics in meditation and self-development that I even did in advertising. It's a minefield of, uh, <laughs> of hierarchy and demanding individuals and it ironically can be really rife with ego. So my summary of that is that if anyone is looking to engage in anything that's spiritual or self-development, just make sure that you leave the politics at the door. You don't have to engage with them and you don't have to be a part of it. You can go there for knowledge and practice and make it your own. So always use your inner moral compass and your and, and stay in alignment with your values, um, even as you learn and grow and expand as a human. And I, I, I think that is a blueprint you could apply to a new workplace or a new project. Totally. I was going to say, that's like life advice yeah. really, isn't it? Like, it is, yeah, yeah. But I think what happens to people is they go, I understand that in those areas of my life, but when it comes to me developing as a person as opposed to my relationship in something, um, everyone can sometimes get a little confused around, oh, that, I, you know, that thing might make, something might make me uncomfortable about that, but I guess everyone's got my best interest at heart because this is all about being a better person, right? And that's not always necessarily true. So I think we need to be really discerning in seeking out people and particularly teachers in these areas that are really aligned with what we would like, that are living the lives that we go, yep, you know what, that makes perfect sense to me, Um, as opposed to just ignoring a lot of stuff because, oh, I guess they're spiritual and they've got heaps of followers so that everything must be fine, right? Um, Which you see happening a lot. Absolutely. That's really great sage advice. And if you do want to connect further with Jackie Lewis, there will be some details of the Broad Place and her social media links on our show notes. But you've been listening to The Politics of Everything. Until next time, keep well. Thanks for listening today. If you've enjoyed The Politics of Everything, we thrive on feedback. So please add a short review and share the podcast with your network and your friends and family. I'm also always on the hunt for fabulous new guests. So if you've got a view to share and an idea how to get our listeners excited, please email me at amber at bespokecoms, that's B-E-S-P-O-K-E-C-O-M-M-S dot com dot A-U and we'll be sure to get back to you. Until next time.